I'm going to begin uh, this morning by asking just a, a short series of questions I'd like you to kind of ponder for a second. What do you do in life when the rug gets pulled out from underneath you? And that will happen. What do you do when your world gets rocked? That will also happen. What do you do when you find yourself in what seems to be the worst case scenario? I ran into this a while ago. It's called Instructions, supposedly a page out of the manual for Peace Corps volunteers headed for South America. Uh, Sounds a little um, like they were trying to anticipate the very worst possible scenario. The uh, page was entitled, What to Do if Attacked by an Anaconda. I figured that might be useful information for us in Kansas starting the year 2013. So these are the instructions of uh, what to do if attacked by an anaconda. First, if you're attacked by an anaconda, do not run. The snake is faster than you are. Number two, lie flat on the ground. Number three, put your arms tight at your sides and your legs tight against one another. Number four, the snake will come and begin to nudge and climb over your body, which leads to number five, which is do not panic. Number six, after the snake has examined you, it will begin to swallow you from the feet end, always from the feet end. Number seven, the snake will now begin to suck your legs into its body. You must lie perfectly still. This will take a long time. Number eight, when the snake has reached your knees, slowly and with as little movement as possible, reach down, take your knife, and very gently slide it into the side of the snake's mouth, between the edge of its mouth and your leg. Then suddenly rip upwards, severing the snake's head. Number nine, be sure your knife is sharp. (laughs) And then my favorite, number ten, be sure you have your knife. Now I'm pretty sure none of us will run into a scenario like this in Kansas in 2013. But there is actually a book, actually a series of books entitled... Worst Case Scenarios. And in the preface to these books, the authors write, the principle behind these books is a simple one. You just never know. You just never really know what curves life will throw you, what's lurking around the next corner, what the next sunrise may bring. You never know when you might be called to make a very difficult decision under pressure, under very tough circumstances. Well, today we're going to be looking at a passage out of the book of Daniel, chapter 3, and we find three young men. It's a remarkable story. Three young men who life throws a doozy of a curve, and they find themselves in a situation under tremendous pressure with dire consequences, and they have to make a choice, a choice between life or death, a choice between faith or compromise. If you have a Bible with you, uh, you can follow along on the screen uh, or in your Bible. There's Bibles uh, in the chair racks in front of you as well. But we're going to be working our way through a good portion of this chapter. Uh, We won't read it all, but we'll hit several of the verses. Uh, Most of us were probably first exposed to this story from Daniel 3 when we were in Sunday school. And maybe there was a video, or maybe if you're really older like me, flannel graphs or different things where they would have uh, the story of 
of these three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in the fiery furnace. And we're going to be looking at now starting at chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of other music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. All, except we'll find out just in a few minutes, three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They did not bow down. They did not kneel. They did not compromise their faith. Now, a little bit of background on these three young men. Um, They have already had a difficult life. They have already lost their homeland. They were exiled from Israel to Babylon. They've lost their families. Even their names have been changed because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not Jewish names. They were Babylonian names given to them in an effort to strip them of their sense of identity, of their rootedness, and ultimately of their allegiance to their God. So they've had a tough life, and then it gets worse on this day. And one day we, we find out this, this king, Nebuchadnezzar, ruler of all of Babylon, makes a statue. And, and what the statue stands for, we're not sure. It's not really clear what it stands for. The name of the god that the idol represents is not mentioned. But I think probably it was, for Nebuchadnezzar it was more of a, of a political move than a religious move. Because you see, Babylon was like the Roman Empire of the day. They had conquered many peoples. They had conquered many nations. And so they, they pull all this, this huge melting pot of, of, of people and cultures and religions together. And he's looking for some way to unify them, to cause them all to focus and, and kneel to him. And so he makes this huge statue. He gathers all the leaders of all these people and tongues and nations. He gathers them together in an effort to consolidate his power over the people. And, it's, and it seems to have worked. Because literally in verse 7, the text says in the, in the original language, as soon as they were hearing, they were falling. In other words, it was like a race to see who could hit the ground first to show Nebuchadnezzar how devoted they were to him. And then we can imagine in the crowd there's this, this ripple of noise. Quiet at first, it gets louder until it's heard above all this music. And suddenly nobody is looking at the statue anymore. In an act that looks like either monumental courage or suicidal folly, these three young men are still standing. They have not bent their knees. They have not bowed their heads in worship. And then we see in verse 8. At this time, some astrologers, those would be kind of high-ranking officials, at at this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. 
They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, and these three are not obeying. Now, the word denounced, again, in the, in the original language, means to eat pieces of them. It's, it's intended by the writer to convey intense hostility towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. One scholar notes that this story might be the first historical account of religious persecution, certainly of anti-Semitism. Back to verse 13. Let's skip ahead to verse 13 a little bit. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound uh, of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. He's given them another chance. Very gracious, right? But if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then, then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? What God will be able to rescue you from my hand? This falls into the category of a a rhetorical question, right? When, when a speaker asks a rhetorical question, they're not really looking for an answer. They're not really looking for information. They're trying to make a point. Sort of like when I was growing up, my parents' favorite rhetorical question was, Doug, do you want a spanking? <laughs> now, no kid was going to say, well, yeah, I was thinking about going out and playing today. It's a beautiful day. But, uh, you know, this would be good for my character development. Let's just go with your idea. You don't, you don't do, it's a rhetorical question, right? It's not meant to, be, meant to be answered. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here. What God can deliver you from my hand? He's trying to make a point. He's just reminding them who's in charge and that they have no choice. But much to his surprise, there are three men who do not treat it as a rhetorical question because they have faith that there is a big God who oversees all the affairs of humankind and so they respond in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. And then some unbelievable words here. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand. So they're saying to King Nebuchadnezzar, to paraphrase, Nebuchadnezzar, the God that we serve, is able. He's not a myth, king. He's not an abstraction. He's not a, a nice religious philosophy. He's not a, a lovely idea. He's not, he's not like the statue you have built for us in the desert. He's real and he's made everything. And he rules over time and space and history. And he's making himself known among the peoples of the earth. And he is able to serve, to save us from the furnace. He is able to deliver us from your hand. The God we serve is able. Our God is able. That's a powerful truth. And because our God is able, as we face the challenges and adversities and opportunities of 2013, we don't have to live in fear. And we don't have to live in defeat. And we don't have to cower because even though every human power will find its limit, our God's power is not limited. Our God is able. 
Every pair of arms is going to wear out one day. Every human being is going to find out that they have limitations at some point, no matter how rich, how smart, how strong, how powerful. All of us will have to face our limitations someday. Because there will be an enemy, and there will be a problem. There will be a diagnosis or a disease. There will be a loss. There will be old age, and eventually there will be death. But our God's arms have lost none of their strength. And so we live in faith, not in fear. Every day, no matter what we face, no matter what the problem is, no matter how deep the discouragement, no matter what internal emotions we wrestle with, because the God we serve is able. And that's great news. The God we serve is able to reconcile broken marriages. And I've seen that happen. And the God we serve is able to to liberate people from horrible addictions. And I've seen him do that too. The God we serve is able to heal damaged bodies. I've seen that. The God we serve is able to forgive the darkest of sins and make a new creature in its place. I've seen it happen. The God we serve is able to provide for our greatest need and to guide us with, with incredible spiritual wisdom. Our God is able. I encourage you to live with that this next few days. Our God is able. So when you run into a problem or when somebody does not like you, when something is not going your way, when a worry comes into your mind, remember, our God is able. And so the reason these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, live in faith, not in fear, is because they have a solid belief that they live in the universe with this great big God who has created it and them and everything. And so their focus is not particularly on the size of the furnace or the power of Nebuchadnezzar or the hopelessness of their scenario. Their focus is on their God, on the power of the God, on, their, on the size of their God, on the love of their God. And they're able to say to King Nebuchadnezzar, our God is able. But they don't stop there. They go on to make another statement which is breathtaking in, in, in its, in, when you think about it. Because there's one thing you need to know about these three young guys. They are not people with a superficial faith that has emerged because their lives have been easy and good. You know, sometimes we can see that with people. Uh, give glib answers, easily voiced, kind of superficial spiritual faith that, is, that doesn't really get rooted too deeply. But these three young men, their lives have been exceptionally difficult. They would have prayed a long time ago when Babylon was rising as a, as a power and, and little Israel was threatened. They would have prayed that Nebuchadnezzar would not defeat them. But he did. And they would have prayed when Babylon took over, it came in and, and took some of the brightest and best from amongst them to take them to exile in, in Babylon. They would have prayed that they would not be amongst those numbered, but they were. And they would have prayed when they heard about this decree that they would not be put to the test, that they would not have to be in a situation that Nebuchadnezzar would, would repent or that Nebuchadnezzar would give them uh, an out as Jews. But he didn't. Not one of those prayers got answered. At every point, these three men would have been disappointed in their answers to prayer. 
And at every point, their worst-case scenario came close. And now they face it. And every door of escape has been closed tight. And so what do they do? Once more, they testify to their faith in the one they serve. And they say, if we are thrown into the furnace, O king, we want you to know the God we serve is able to save us from it. And then in verse 18, one of the greatest statements of faith ever uttered by a human being. But even if he does not, you know, our God can still rescue us, they say. The God who drowned Pharaoh's army, the God who felled Jericho's walls, the God who dropped Goliath with a stone, who brought man in the morning, who, who guided, them, guided his people by, as a pillar of fire at night, the God who spoke the world into existence. Our God can still rescue us, but even if he does not, they say in verse 18, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. You know, it makes me think of Job in the Old Testament who went through intense pain and suffering without relief, without explanation. And he said, though he slay me, speaking of God, yet I will trust him. And I think of Esther in the Old Testament who decided she would confront a king bent on genocide even though it could mean her death. And she said, I will go to the king even though it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. You know, a lot of us are tempted to pray, God, if you'll grant me this one request, if you give me what I really want, I'll spend the rest of my life serving you. I'll tell everybody else about you. But do we have the kind of faith that says, but even if you do not, I will still serve you? For example, maybe you're in a relationship and the truth is you really like this person. You love this person. You're highly attracted to each other. But he's pressuring you to cross certain boundaries in your physical relationship. And he's involved in behavior that's opposed to your deepest values. Now, you can rationalize staying together if you want to. Underneath it, you're afraid. In essence, you're saying, I may never find somebody like this that I'm this attracted to, that I love this much. I may end up alone. And you know that God is able to bring somebody else. The question is, Will I trust him even if it appears he will not? Maybe it involves finances that are going really badly and you're in debt. Or maybe you can't find a job or the job you're in isn't turning out very well. Will you have faith? Our God is able to make a way, but will you have faith even if he does not? Maybe your health is in a real precarious situation. Maybe you wrestle with depression that is so bad some mornings you just don't want to get out of bed. Our God is able to bring joy. Our God is able to lift depression. But will you have faith even if he does not? Our God is able, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, and we will worship no other God but you. We will not bend our knees to this idol. He's able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we still remain faithful. And then we see Nebuchadnezzar's response in verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. 
So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and their furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. And then, remarkable conclusion, verses 24 through 27. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men walking around the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out. Come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was the hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. The furnace, which looked like certainly the end of their lives, turns out to be the greatest thing they ever experienced because they met God there. They were hoping to get delivered from the furnace, but instead God decided to deliver them in the furnace. God decided to meet them in the furnace. And this is the truth that will change our lives. We most fully know and experience God in the midst of the furnace, in the midst of difficult, hard, painful places and experiences. That's where we most fully and completely meet God, our, our Lord. You know, I wonder what these three men, what the rest of their lives were like. We don't really know. This is our last view of them in Scripture. They're not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. But I wonder, as they went through life, if they ever thought about how easily they might have missed out on this incredible experience with God, this incredible adventure, if they had bent the knee, if they had bowed down, if they had said the word. They would have missed the adventure of their lifetime. They would have missed the fourth man in the furnace. And I believe the fourth man in the furnace was Jesus. In Matthew 1, we're told that Jesus' name was to be Emmanuel, God with us. And Jesus, what's amazing thing about God is, is that in the incarnation, God shows us that God does not ask us to do anything that he himself was not willing to do himself. We see this in the garden. We see this in Jesus' life. We see this in the crucifixion on Calvary. Jesus prayed in the garden that his father would spare him the suffering of the cross, the painful public humiliation. Jesus prayed that he would be spared the pain of carrying our sin on himself. But then Jesus modeled the kind of faith that we are to, to have the kind of faith that Job and Esther and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego had when he prayed, Father, I want to be spared this, but even if I am not, let this cup pass from me, but even if it does not, not my will, 
but yours be done. Sometimes God delivers people from the furnace because he is able to do anything. But sometimes God delivers people in the furnace. But either way, Jesus is always Emmanuel. Jesus is always, always with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today. And we thank you for your word of truth. And we thank you for this, uh, this powerful story from, from Daniel of these three young men, probably teenagers or early 20s, who did not bow down, who knew that you were able to do anything and believed that you could and would, but were able to stay in faith, in authenticity. But even if he doesn't, we will still serve him and we will not bow down. Lord, I pray that you would help each person here today, regardless of the situation of their life, whether they're in the midst of the furnace, on their way out, or on their way in. Lord, I pray that you would increase our faith and that our faith would be increased because we trust you and because we know that you are there with us and because we meet you in the midst. Thank you for what we have just celebrated this Christmas and for really what we are to celebrate and remember and affirm each day of the year that you are Emmanuel, that you are with us. Amen.